brain fog, insomnia, moodiness, weight gain. Maybe you think they're just part of getting older, but Midi Health understands that for women over 40, they can all connect to menopause. It's at the root of dozens of symptoms we experience, not just hot flashes. Midi clinicians are menopause experts offering safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of Midi patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. I'm Whitney. And I'm Danny. And that's Josie. And we're the hosts of Creepy Caffeine. We love talking about stories of things that go bump in the night. If it's a tale that gets under your skin, we want to scratch that itch until it comes crawling out to eviscerate your face. I don't know if that was necessary. On each episode, we bring you a variety of stories from true crime, urban legends, and the paranormal, including letting you tag along on some of our ghost investigations. And every once in a while, we share an interview with our creepy kitty, Josie. We're available on iTunes and Stitcher or wherever you enjoy your favorite podcasts. So grab your caffeinated beverage of choice and join us every week for the podcast meant to get your blood pumping with a few laughs along the way. Hi, I'm Carol. And I'm Holly. And we are the hosts of Fireside Phantoms. On our podcast, we will delight in telling you stories of the strange, twisted, dark, and foreboding. Creepy, crawly things slinking up your leg. Ghostly hands reaching out from beyond the grave. And we will ask hard-hitting questions like, Can Slender Man fit into my skinny jeans? Who is Wrinkles the Clown? And how can he make your child's next birthday party special? Why shouldn't we invite the black-eyed kids in? What really is going on at your creepy neighbor's house? And is it okay to peek inside? And many, many more. So join us and our forest friends as we gather around a warm and crackling campfire. This is Fireside Phantoms. This podcast contains adult language and stories of true crime. If you don't like laughing, crying or being horrified at the actions of other humans, this podcast is not for you. What's up, honeys? Oh, all the Hi. Wow. Love Ow, that. I'm getting attacked by a kitten. Hi. Eliza's being attacked by a kitten. I'm On getting a little butt. sweaty. How are you um, doing over there, Allison? I'm fine. For the first time ever, I'm not the one with the problem. Love it. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Welcome to season three, episode three of Resolve Mysteries. Yay. Is, yes. Welcome. Um, this is a show where we rewatch, recap, and give you the latest updates to cases featured on the show, Unsolved Mysteries. 
Um, as you guys know, for every review that we receive, we donate a dollar to an organization that we love. And for this month, we have chosen the Foundation for Women's Cancer, which was suggested by our patron, Courtney B. Thanks, Courtney. Thank you, Courtney. Eliza, would you like to shout out some patrons? Oh, yes. We have some true sweeties, Ryan H, Sam A, Amber S, Rebecca P, V Arrow, Sophie H, Becky, Aaron H, Mary, Callie M, Melissa H, Bethany M, and Kayla L. Sorry. Oh my gosh, I'll put this kitten down. She just will <laughs> not be up here. But, uh, okay. <laughs> Patrons, you got a little extra couple mews in there, mews and meows, because we love you so much. Thank you. <laughs> Gandalf was thanking you. Yeah, Gandalf says thank you. Should we give a disclaimer that maybe we're going to hear Gandalf throughout this episode because yeah. you're you're quarantined with him? Yeah, yes. he's literally quarantined up here because he's got a poopy butt. Yeah, <laughs> we're we're all quarantined from COVID, and he's quarantined from the other cats. So it's just a real cluster. Here. And he's chatty. He's a chatty he's, cat. He's a busybody. So. I love it. We'll try we'll try not to let it ruin the seriousness of any serious segments that we mm -hmm. have, but there may be a kitty in the background. Yeah. Just know you may hear some news. Live in that <laughs> quarantine podcast life. Um, all right. So if you would like to support us on Patreon, you would get access to a couple extra episodes a month. You get early access to some of our episodes and some other goodies and things in the mail. We are gonna be taking a couple of weeks off in August, but yeah, bye. <laughs> We're not excited about She it says with all. love. Um, but we have some great content for patrons that we're going to release. Like patron-selected unsolved topics, mm -hmm. which is where our patrons get to pick something that we talk about. And we recorded them already, and they are good. They're really mm -hmm. good. There are some mm -hmm. fun ones. Yeah. So, yeah, head over to patreon.com slash Resolve Mysteries podcast if you want to find all those delightful things. So. Yeah. Um, what topics are we covering in this episode, everybody? I go first, and I have a wanted segment. Wanted could basically just turn into Sweetheart Swindler. Seems like we have a lot of those. How and sad. This, this is the story of Eric Kessler. And then I have a wanted segment, and it is a true dick bitch monster, Dr. Kenneth Frank. Oh, this is a trigger warning. We have some heavy hitters in this epi. Yeah. Seriously. There's a lot of stuff going on. Yeah. Allison texted us and was like, there's a lot of dick bitches in this episode. Mm -hmm. <laughs> we, we, should like, maybe yeah. just call, we should maybe just call the episode dick bitch. All like, the dick bitches. All I can't them. remember the last time we had so many in such a small amount of space. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and then I'm going to be covering a missing persons case about Dan Wilson. And then I'm going to wrap it up with another wanted segment. And it's the Minnesota Brinks heist. Got to okay. get that money. Money, money. All right. All right. All right. Let's do it. Here we go. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system.
As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. So we have, like I said, another sweetheart swindler situation. This is a wanted segment, and his alias is Eric Kessler. I'll just tell you up top, that's not his real name. <gasps> no. Can you Shocking. believe? Shocked. So in September 1986, a man who said his name was Eric Kessler met a woman named Catherine at a singles party. Catherine is not her real name. The victim is choosing to not use her name. Catherine was a successful hair salon owner, and Eric Kessler claimed to be a successful German businessman who was staying in the area for a year. So first of all, I just need to say that the actress playing Catherine is really good in this segment. I enjoyed her performance a lot. Mm -hmm. And you may not agree with me because I know I have white blonde actress blindness, but <laughs> hear me out. I thought she, maybe she looks like Jane Krakowski, who played Jenna on 30 Rock. I would need to see her. Yeah, I don't remember. I watched right that one now. too long ago. All right. I'm but just I love me some Jane Krakowski. Yeah. I love her. She's great. She's, she's fantastic. I think she looks a little like her. So in the reenactment of their meeting... Eric is using a German accent, and when Catherine told him about her salon business, oh, which I do need to say that Stack fully pronounces salon. Oh, <laughs> Every yes. time. Honey. <laughs> salon. Salon. <laughs> Kessler claimed that he knew of an invention that could help her, and oh, honeys, this it is, is so the best <laughs> technology we've seen on the show, so afar. So, the invention was a computerized, quote, video makeover that could allow a customer to, like, import their photo, take all the their hair off. Don't worry, <laughs> we'll post pictures of this whole thing in the process. And then pick from a variety of different colors and hairstyles to be placed on the head to see what they would look like with that hairstyle. Honestly, it's a great idea for the late 80s. I'm sure it looked like it was going to be the next big thing. Well, and they, um, there are like you can look at like makeup sites and stuff that use this now. You're doing it now. Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. But of Slightly course, better quality. Yeah. yeah to our eyes like, now, it's hilarious to look at. Yeah. It's like choose your hair helmet. Yeah. It totally. literally is like red hair helmet, black hair helmet. <laughs> totally. <laughs> 
Catherine is very excited about this new technology. And of course, Eric Kessler is like, yeah, this is this will be great for you in your salon business. Um, <laughs> she sees the software in action. And Kessler tell, told her that he was planning on placing the video makeover system in several Midwestern hair salons, but he needed money from her for an investment. So she had a wealthy friend who gave her a $50,000 loan. Uh, oh, so she's not Why don't giving we her have own any money. wealthy friends. Where are my $50,000 friends at? 50086 Yes. Yes. Yeah. Why aren't yeah. you guys $50,000 friends? I'm what the hell? Well, that's why we started this podcast, but some for some reason it's not working out. <laughs> it turns out there's no money in podcasting. <laughs> So she gets this. So, oh, it's just already bad. She's not only not she's not giving her own money. She's borrowing from a friend to invest in this guy she barely knows. And a few days later, he moves into her basement to he thinks we need to just work closely together to be creating and working on this business. I'm just going to move into your basement. No, that's no. not how a business partnership works. Oh, yeah. And this is the second time where it's like the guy being like, I think what would be best is if I moved into your house. (laughs) What? You need to be invited. I'm sorry. You don't get to say that's what's best. And this, um, I should say, Catherine had children that she wanted to put through school. Like she wasn't just doing it to really, you know, make her business successful. It was also to support her family. And she did have a family that she needed to help. So originally, the relationship between uh, Eric Kessler and Catherine was platonic and just a business relationship, but I maybe the first two days because then he moved in to her basement and then he began to romance her. And within three weeks of their original meeting um, and romance that followed, Catherine came home one day to find him in the reenactment. He's like hustling to unwrap a few more things. And then she's coming up the stairs. Eric, I'm home. And he turns towards her holding a, a fluffy, I think, heart-shaped pillow. Yes, 100% and heart-shaped behind pillow. him is a golden iron king-size bed in yes. her bedroom. Yes. Up until now, he has been sleeping in the basement. He has not been sleeping in her home, in like her living space. So he makes the ginormous jump to buy her a king size bed. And his reasoning is we can't both fit in your bed. And I think it'd be better if I move, I do a level up and I sleep with you now. <laughs> and now I will sleep in your bed. Once so. again, you need to be invited. Oh my gosh. It's not your decision. Terrible. What the actual terrible. This is actually, I think as far as Sweetheart Swindlers go, this is one of the saddest ones. It truly is. Like the most amount of money. I think there was one in the first season that was Mm -hmm. like the woman threatened to end her own life. But I think that this is one of the worst ones. So awful. The like um, the emotional abuse. So yeah, everything seems, I mean, obviously hindsight is 2020. So it's like, oh, he's, he was a really nice guy, really charming. Uh, once he got into that king size bed, though, he quickly began controlling every decision she made from choosing her wardrobe, choosing her makeup and her jewelry. Mm. And then we see the real Catherine, not her real name again. Um, her talking head is all in shadow so she can remain anonymous. And she explains that 
Soon, she would not have been able to even pick out a pair of earrings without asking his advice. Like, he had torn her confidence down so much that even if she had had the opportunity to do anything on her own, she would have been like, I need to ask him first and see what he thinks. Like, that's how quickly he was able to infiltrate and take control. Wow. Which is just so sad. He even convinced her to lease a Cadillac with several expensive additions, including a car phone. And the payment would be about $500 a month, which she thought was too much. And he still was able to convince her to go through with the purchase. Of course, all of this is in her name, using her money, using her loans, and he's paying for none of it, but he just has this great opportunity that he's presenting to her. And, you know, I'm sure he's telling her the payback's going to be huge or I'm going to pay everybody back once we get, you know, the money out of this video makeover business, whatever. She she also said that um, she trusted him because he said specifically, I don't want your money. I want everything in your name. Mm. Like in the beginning. Right. And then so that, that was like, so she was like, oh, he's not trying to take my money. He wants me to keep the money. He right. wants me to be responsible for the right. money. And then he like systematically dismantles every part of her personality. Yeah. yeah. It's so people like that. Oh my gosh. What is, I mean, it's like type of evil that is. Well, it's just also like cult leader. Like I just kept thinking like everything he was doing. Yeah. Very is bad. like what a cult leader does, you know? Yeah. And like yeah. when she, she would wear his clothing that he picked out and he would say, do you feel confident? Because you look good. So if you look good, you should feel confident. Like right. these clothes that I gave you should make you feel good, you know, just like yeah. hammering all mm-hmm. of that. Uh, so Kessler and Catherine were also doing regular parties or hosting uh, potential investors And they'd have, you know, fancy dinners. This part's really sick. He would deprive her of sleep by, she'd work all day at the salon. Then they would host uh, potential investors or people that they were wanting to work with until late at night. And then he would say, all right, we're going downstairs and we're going to start working on business stuff. And it'd be like 3 Mm a.m. And he'd say, you need to start paying these accounts or you need to do this. And truly sleep depriving her. Which is crazy making. Another control tactic. Yes. It's so scary. He often asked her for large cash advances that were supposed to go to other employees. And he also asked her to put $27,000 of her own money into the business. So now there's the $50,000 from her friend and then $27,000 of her own money. He's put no money into it, of course. Mm -mm. So... She gets smart. Some women wouldn't still. Some people would still be, you know, fully bought in. But she tells him eventually, I think you're a con man, Um, which must have been so scary because and just the worst realization ever. Yeah. So eventually um, Eric Kessler ended the relationship. He moved out of Catherine's apartment or house. I think she had a house. And they had broken up and he was actually already dating a new woman, but they still mm-hmm. had this business together. And on the day that she was, but it's really him who said, I will repay your friend who gave us $50,000. On the day he was supposed to repay her for the loan, Catherine met him at a bar. She was really concerned that they wouldn't be able to repay her friend because there was absolutely no money in the business account at all. And 
of course, he says, oh, no, you don't need to worry about it. There's a special check coming. It's coming tomorrow at 9 a.m. <laughs> Just bullshit. And I think she thinks this is not going to happen. There's no way. Mm -hmm. But she's hopeful. And she's like, how am I supposed to pay her? What do I do? And he's like, well, just write her a check for $50,000 and give it to her. And then it will clear once this, quote, special check comes in. So she does it. I don't think she, at least in the reenactment, she didn't say anything to her friend like this might bounce. She just writes it to her and gives it to her. And of course, the special check never came. The $50,000 check of repayment bounced and the money, the business had no money. So then the night after their meeting in the bar, the bar called her number and asked where Eric Kessler was. And she said she didn't know he had moved out. And the bar employee explained that he was looking for him because he had tried to use a bad check the night before at the bar. So not only can is there no way he can cover a $50,000 check, he can't even cover, you know, a $10 check at a bar. Hadn't um, he actually like racked up a lot of money at the bar too? Oh, maybe so. I don't remember that. I think it was like a thousand dollar tab. Yeah. Like it was really high. Wild. Oh, really? I don't yeah. Know yeah. That makes sense. I mean, if he's going to run a bad check, yeah. Why not get all the money out of it? You can. Yeah. So Kessler left, of course, without paying her back any of the money that he had taken from her. In the end, she lost over $75,000 to him. Um, she told him, you know, I'm going to go to the police about this. And he said, good luck. Everything's in your name. It'll be your yeah. word against mine and they'll never believe you because you literally put everything in your name. My name is on nothing. I have not signed a single thing. So like you were saying, Allison, at first that was something that won her over, but really it's a way for him to get away with it. So just and like, think word. about how, like, if you're going to swindle someone, that is the way to do it, right? Like yeah. convince them that it's all their idea and yeah. make it look like on paper that it was all their idea. Right. So she was forced into bankruptcy and, of course, had to sell her salon business, was not able to pay for her children's schooling like she had wanted to. Just a total nightmare. So the segment on UM is almost over. Somehow in between their filming all those reenactments and then putting the show out, UM says that authorities identified Eric Kessler as a con man who, whose real name was Edward Maynard, but Stack doesn't say how they know that. Okay. Um, and Edward Maynard had left town before he could be arrested. Oh, and then we get, I think maybe this is only our second, we get a whole new segment. Then we get a scene of our favorite, the UM call center. And this is maybe mm. only the second time we've seen this. And the segment, then this segment's not over. We get a whole other segment with a bunch of reenactments that were based on caller tips to the UM hotline. So then the same actor that played Eric Kessler or Edward Maynard comes back and reenacts these few stories. So first, uh, viewers called and said that he had been seen in Naples, Florida. Mm -hmm. And Maynard was living under the alias Eric Kelly. So he just loves the name Eric. He loves it. He can't <laughs> let it go. But it'll change Eric the Eric Yep. Authorities learned that in December 1990, he became romantically involved with a woman named Anne. Of course, that's also not her real name. He persuaded her to loan him $15,000. And then he left with the money and she did not see him again. And this is reenactment. Reenacted. Then... 
in February 1991, he showed up in San Antonio. This time, though, he uses Eric Kelly again. He doesn't switch the last name. And this was a bad move. So he asked yet another woman to loan him some money. And in the reenactment, it wasn't that much. And at first she refused, but he became loud and angry and like grabbed her wrist. Uh, yeah. Scary. And so she decided to loan him the money. And after that, she didn't see him again. So she contacted the police and they realized that um, Eric Kelly was being profiled on Unsolved Mysteries. So she called maybe a couple weeks before this airing. And then she said one of the police officers called her and said, turn on the TV. Are you watching Unsolved Mysteries? That's our guy. Um, when this segment was first aired. That's wild. Yeah. yeah. So four days later, another viewer's tip placed Maynard in Houston, Texas. Again, he was using the same alias, Eric Kelly. And there he was arrested by the FBI at a Houston hotel. But after he was released on bail, he fled the area. So three years. So he's arrested once based on viewer tips through UM. And once he was released on bail, he fled three years later in March of 1994, he was captured in Toledo, Ohio, and that arrest was the result of viewers' tips of a re-airing of the wow. segment. So he's oh my god, he's one, of the, he's one of two. Louis Carlucci also was captured twice as a result of viewers' tips, and now he is as well. Wow. So he was convicted and sentenced to seven and a half years in prison. He served five years and was released. And I could not find him. I would assume he's you? no longer alive, but also who knows how many names that he's used. Yeah. One of his, um, or his real middle name was Chase, Edward Chase Maynard. I just wanted to say one of the things that I found in another newspaper article. So when he was charged, this says he is charged here with forgery and two counts of fraud for convincing one woman to invest $75,000 in a phony business. Um, so that's the one Catherine's um, mm -hmm. case. And I thought that was interesting. Like, okay, where did he get this software then? Is it Was it really phony? Did he have a floppy disk that just happened to have this? But he didn't really have any... Um, anything to do with this business like who he didn't design it he wasn't a yeah. software engineer so I don't know where he got that yeah you're right um, I bet he had a floppy something he did you know just saying so the prosecuting attorney said um, his name was sales said he has acknowledged being a professional con man and then he went on to read a letter that was found in his um, Toledo hotel room when he was first arrested and apparently he had written this letter addressed to one of the victims asking for understanding and part of it said quote I used you don't hate me for that I am very good at using people right up to the very last minute Ugh. don't that's, hate me for that uh -huh. <laughs> no and that's also, that's the reason we hate you yeah and like that's gonna help us understand you and feel bad for you I don't know so no 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 so yeah, I would assume he's no longer alive. He was 54 when he was arrested. So just a dick bitch, just running around ruining women's lives. Oh, also in some of the reenactments, 
um, of the later viewer stories, after Catherine's case, he was not using a German accent. So not only is right. he taking things, you know, but then he, it turns out that that first accent was probably fake that whole time, which like, yeah, man, then you're really lean, leaning in. Yeah. Oh, no. Also, one of the things I found was he met a woman one time when he was acting as Eric Kessler in his German accent. And she was like, oh, wow, I'm studying German right now because I want to go live there. And he did not know a word of German, even though he had this accent. Oh. So, like, you idiot. Stupid. I love that. I love also, that. No disrespect to German accents, but like it isn't the sexiest of accents. <laughs> oh my god, no! Like if you're gonna try to win, win a woman over, like wouldn't you go with like French or right. Italian or Spanish? Like to choose German to like yes. get a lady going is really an interesting choice. Yeah, <laughs> and then you better know some of the language. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, I agree with you. Out of all the sweetheart swindlers, he's definitely the most aggressive and like worst we've seen. Mm-hmm. Yeah, just in terms of the psychological abuse. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, the worst. Yeah. Nice Ooh. work, girl. Oh, you are the queen of sweetheart swindlers. No, I'll take them down. So <laughs> <laughs> one bad haircut at a time. Oh, or bad I did job. Software. Mm. <laughs> oh my God. All right. <laughs> Hey, Resolvers, we wanted to talk to you about CBD for Life. They're one of the first CBD brands and one of the original brands who helped to start the CBD movement and revolution and are celebrating five years this year. CBD for Life is rooted in cannabis and not riding the CBD wave. Their founders have a deep understanding of the industry and are responsible for moving the cannabis conversation forward. One thing we really love about CBD for Life is that they're female-founded and operated, which is super cool. They source their CBD from organically farmed Colorado hemp and there is no THC detected in their products. They use CBD isolate, which is the crystalline powder form of CBD. In this form, all other plant matter, oils, waxes, chlorophyll, and other cannabinoids are removed, leaving only CBD. They reintroduce botanical terpenes in their formulas to create a desired aromatic effect and to help increase the bioavailability of their CBD. CBD for Life has over 2,000 five-star reviews, and we have gotten to enjoy some of their products very recently. I really liked their Pure CBD face cream and the lavender roll-on oil. In the wake of the pandemic, they have also recently started making hand sanitizer and have donated cases of it to local frontline workers, organizations, and essential businesses. And we love that. Listeners of Resolve Mysteries are going to get 20% off CBD for Life products. If you want to give them a try, go to cbdforlife.us and use our promo code MYSTERIES. That's promo code MYSTERIES, M-Y-S-T-E-R-I-E-S. Hey Resolvers, Eliza here, and I wanted to tell you about something I just got that has made all my podcast and music listening so much better. Raycon earbuds. Whether you're working from home or working on your fitness, you want what you're listening to to be what you're listening to, not what your roommates, your neighbors, or your partner are listening to. Everyone needs a great pair of wireless earbuds, but before you go dropping hundreds of dollars on a pair, you need to check out the wireless earbuds from Raycon. You already know Raycon earbuds start at about half the price of any other premium wireless earbuds on the market. 
and that they sound just as amazing as other top audio brands you know. But their newest model, the Everyday E25 earbuds, those are the ones that I have, are their best ones yet. With six hours of playtime, seamless Bluetooth pairing, more bass, and a more compact design that gives you a nice, noise-isolating fit. Raycon's wireless earbuds are so comfortable, perfect for conference calls or binging podcasts. Raycons are a game changer. Today I was gardening and I was able to walk all around the perimeter of my house with my phone on the back deck and earbuds in and I never lost Bluetooth connection. The sound is great. I love them. Raycon earbuds are both stylish and discreet with none of those dangling wires or stems to distract anyone during video calls. This company was co-founded by Ray J and celebrities like Snoop Dogg, Cardi B, Melissa Etheridge, Brandy, of course, and J.R. Smith are all obsessed with Raycons. Pick up a pair and see what the hype is all about. Now's the time to get the latest and greatest from Raycon. Get 15% off your order at buyraycon.com slash resolve the pod. That's buyraycon.com slash resolve the pod, no dashes, for 15% off Raycon wireless earbuds. All right. So in our cavalcade of dick bitches, Oh, here this we go. Is, this is the second one. So this is a wanted segment, and it is the story of Dr. Kenneth Frank, should a we monster. Give, should we give any sort of warning? Yeah, I'm going to. Okay. So, yes, we're putting a trigger warning here for sexual assault survivors. This is a really disturbing segment, and there's a lot of triggers for those uh, that have survived sexual abuse. So the segment opens with Stack saying that the crime of rape is all too common and a frequent fact of life in the United States. He goes on to say, sadly, the stigma attached to women who are victimized means such crimes often go unreported. He says this is especially true of date rape, where the victim knows and even trusts the man who rapes her. Stack says in this story, the methods of the rapist are particularly insidious. It is the case of a doctor who uses a powerful sedative to render his victims helpless and then assaults them. So again, please skip this if you think this is going to trigger you in any way. I, we all understand. So Sack says that one woman agreed to talk to UM on the condition that the show doesn't use her real name. So the reenactment begins, and Stack says, Saturday night, a bar in Bakersfield, California, Patty Roberts and Stephanie Phillips were shooting pool when they were greeted by a friend of Stephanie's. The friend of Stephanie introduced the two women to his companion, Dr. Kenneth Frank. Stephanie and Patty agree to join the men for a drink. Patty, interviewed in shadow, says that she immediately liked Dr. Frank. She thought, quote, oh, he's a doctor and a nice guy. He was well-dressed, well-mannered, real friendly, and real talkative. Patty told Dr. Frank that she was studying to be a dental assistant, and he said that he had some friends who were dentists and that they might be hiring and that he would give a referral for her to help her out. Patty says that she went to the bathroom for a few minutes, and when she came out, her friend was gone, and it was just Dr. Frank sitting there by himself. I hate that. Oh, my God. I what forgot about that. The fuck? Like, what happened? I have a feeling that Frank was like, I really like your friend, like, and her friend was probably like, oh, okay, like, well, we can get out of your way if you want us to, That is kind of thing. That is the shit I have ever heard, if that's the- I mean, that's the only thing I can think of. I know, it's crazy. Unless he sent them away and he was like, hey, can you run and get 
something at the store and maybe it'd take like 15 or 20 minutes and then he knew if he could get her out of there he could tell them they're not tell her they're not coming back maybe but I really think he was probably like I really like your friend she's a great girl like I want to like see if I can get something going here is that okay with you and I'm sure Stephanie was like in her mind like oh he's a doctor like of course Patty would want to date him (sighs) Yeah, I don't. I don't know what tactic, but he definitely got rid of the friend somehow. Yeah, yeah, I I know. It was also like, like we would never do that today, but I could see that easily happening back then. And Stephanie being like, "Well, I don't want to like cock block this. Like, okay, I'll get out of the way. Oh my god! Or I'm just gonna do what a doctor is telling me to do. Yeah, like how could he be a bad guy? He's a doctor. Yeah, you know. I hate it. Um. So Patty gets back to the table and Dr. Frank tells her that her friend and Stephanie's friend had left, but that he could give her a ride home. And in the interview, Patty even says like she was really hesitant. She was going to wait, but then she realized that her friend had totally abandoned her. So she finally relents. And then in a classic move on the way home, Dr. Frank says that he has to stop by his apartment to do something. Patty agreed to go in because she wanted the referral for the dentist friend that Frank said was hiring. Yeah, it's all a classic move. Make them Mm -hmm. need something from you. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Get them back to your apartment Mm -hmm. for whatever reason. Mm -hmm. So by the time they got to the apartment, this – well, I'll get into it later. This is not true. This what I'm about to say. So this is UM – creating a narrative. Right. Okay. By the time by the time they got to the apartment, Patty was complaining of having a chest cold. Stack tells us that Dr. Frank quickly fixed up a home remedy, a special coffee drink he claimed would alleviate Patty's cough. In reality, that is not what happened. So we'll I did not believe that for a second. Okay. Yeah, I was like, no way, no way. Yeah. You because- made a call and they were right in the call that they made. Okay. To create this narrative. They were absolutely right, but it's not true. Okay. So So Patty says that she drank it quickly, and it wasn't long after that her eyes started getting blurry. Then her ears started ringing, quote, a real high pitch, and then she fell over. She says she remembers laying there, and she couldn't move. Stack tells us that it wasn't until Monday morning that Patty woke up. As a reminder, they left the bar on Saturday night slash Sunday morning. Terrible. It's crazy. Yeah. It's terrifying. Stack says that while she, quote, slept he uses the word slept she had been raped but i think that if you're asleep for 24 plus hours you're unconscious you're not sleeping you didn't sleep through anything like you're unconscious in the reenactment dr frank basically wakes patty up and tells her like to get up because he's got to go to work patty says she couldn't figure out what happened to sunday that quote somewhere she lost sunday So in the reenactment, she goes into the bathroom. He's like getting ready for work. And she says, you raped me. And he says, I didn't rape you. And Patty says that she knew that he had taken advantage of her. And she says she was so mad she wanted to hurt him like he hurt her. Stack says that Patty had been knocked out for, and he uses the term knocked out, which is like, again, ill-advised, right? Yeah. Um, We know better now. Patty had been unconscious for 26 hours. So she's still groggy and super disoriented. Yeah. And- The doctor offers to give her a ride home and she agrees. Um, And this also happens a lot with date rape victims. The person who rapes them then like drives them home and acts like nothing happened. Mm -hmm. And And it's them being like, I'm so stupid. How did this happen to me? Like, yes. Yep. Um, So Patty says that she lived in a large apartment complex and she had Frank drop her off on the side of the road because she didn't want him to know where she lived. She was afraid of him, obviously. So as she was getting out of the car, 
Dr. Frank tells her that if he were her, he wouldn't tell anybody what happened. Then he says, quote, if you do, next time I'll have to fix it so you can't, which is like terrifying, Horrifying. you know? Patty says that she ran to her apartment. Like I said, she had him drop her at the side of the road because she didn't want him to know where she lived. She was afraid of him. Which was smart but of her. Yeah, it really was. But still, she ran to her apartment. But as she was going in, she turned around and she saw Frank in the car watching her. So That's at that so point, scary. She, she knew that he knew where she lived. Oh, yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, so Patty says she went home, took a shower, and then went to her aunt's house. Um, she said that she was nauseous and she got sick everywhere. And she said it felt like the flu. Mm -hmm. Stack says that Patty continued to be immobilized by Dr. Frank's home remedy, spending much of that Monday in a deep drug-induced sleep. Stack says that like many victims of rape, Patty was so overcome by fear and embarrassment that she could not yet bring herself to go to police. And then this is so fucked up. Seven days later... Patty had a second encounter with Dr. Frank, who acted as if nothing was wrong. Like, what a monster. Horrible. Horrible. So Patty decided to play along, which is so brave, hoping to get Frank to admit to his crime. So in the, in the reenactment, she's trying to play it off, and she's like, wow, whatever you gave me the other night was crazy. Like, what was that? And at first he says, I didn't give you anything. And then he said um, he admitted that he had given her a sedative and that it was kind of like a, quote, experiment for him. Gross. Gross. I am just um, dumbfounded by these guys that admit what they've done. Right. They yeah. just know for sure they can get away with it. So yeah. they can admit it. Yeah. She's so smart, though, to do that. Yeah. Yeah. So Patty says that she started yelling at him in the bar. She starts yelling, you raped me. You raped me. And then she decided that she was going to go to the police. So uh, she says, quote, I looked at all the little girls out there running around and they don't know about stuff like this. And she says she thought that if she could give a report to the police, then she could maybe help someone else, which is so brave. So good of her. Stack tells us three months after the rape, Patty filed a police report, but stopped short of pressing charges. She was worried that a trial would become a, quote, he said, she said situation and that he was a respected doctor. So no one would believe her. And then, this is so sad, Patty also believed that being associated with a rape case would jeopardize her future chances of employment. And she is not wrong on either account, which I is- hated that part. I know. It's terrible, but she's right. It will be a he said, she said. He is a doctor. Yeah. And if she wants to work in the medical industry, she will never work in the medical industry if she presses charges, files charges against, against doctor. Against the doctor, yeah. Yep. So Stack says that Patty also feared that Dr. Frank might make good on his threat to harm her. So Patty tells the detective that she doesn't want to press charges now, but if he does this again to someone else, that she will, which is so, so cool. Like, just, she's amazing. Yeah. Um, so Stack tells us four months after he raped Patty, Frank raped another woman that he had an established professional relationship with. She too was given a sedative. And when she awoke 24 hours later, Frank admitted that he had drugged her. It was later estimated that the amount of sedative in her system was eight times greater than normally administered to patients in surgery. That is like he insane. Could have, he could he have killed, killed her. her. Yes. Yeah. Yep. Like he's dicking around with what these. What would he do? Right. Like, Who knows? Right. Right. Yeah. I know. I mean, to be unconscious for 24 hours. Mm. That's, that's so terrifying. That's like if you 
like one, when one of my relatives was dying of cancer and on morphine, she would sleep for 24 hours. And that was like two weeks before she passed away. Yeah. Like that is incomprehensible to be unconscious for 24 hours. So um, Lisa Green, deputy district attorney of Bakersfield, California, says the second victim was a professional woman in town in her mid 30s. So not young, not a student. And she is a she's a doctor. So she said to like ask Frank, like, what the hell happened? And um, Frank told her what he had given her. And she went to a local lab and had her blood tested for the drug. And it came back positive, And then she went to the police. Queen. So, I mean, just the bravery of these two women mm-hmm. at this time in the face of like when we used to herald doctors and police officers as infallible, you know, this is that time when no one questioned people in authority like that. They were just good people, you yeah. know? So based on the two victims' statements, Kenneth Frank was arrested in February of 1986. Legal wrangling delayed his trial until December of 1989. On December 20th, 1989, the jury convicted him on two counts of rape by administering an intoxicating or anesthetic substance. The judge declined, however, to remand Frank to the state, even though Frank was looking at the maximum sentence of 16 years. So, to absolutely no one's surprise, when he came up for sentencing 28 days later, as is the standard, Frank didn't show up. He had fled. That judge is an idiot. Yep. Mm -hmm. I mean, why are you going to let this guy go live footloose and fancy free for 28 days until then he has to bring his ass back and go to jail? You really think he's going to show up? Come Mm -hmm. on. Yeah. You think he's not a flight risk? Yeah. Give me a break. He's a wealthy doctor Mm -hmm. and a rapist. Like Mm -hmm. he's willing to do anything. Yep. So the update says that after 17 years, Kenneth Frank was captured near Tel Aviv, Israel, where he was married and practicing medicine. He was sentenced to 12 years in prison and has since been released. So that's the UM update. Yeah, that obviously. was shocking. Yes. Yeah. And it's like, you give us one sentence, one sentence encompassing 17 years. You're telling me Tel Aviv and you're not going to say anything else? <laughs> you're just going to be like, that's how it is? Like, really? <laughs> Nothing else? All right. So here is, so we're going to get a little bit of extra scoop here. So here's the full story of what happened to the women. First victim. On October 12, 1985, Mrs. Beverly R., a student at San Joaquin Valley College, and a female friend went to a local bar for a glass of wine. About 2.20 a.m., they went to another bar where the friend introduced Ms. R. to Frank and his brother. Shortly thereafter, Frank agreed to drive Ms. R. home, but stopped first at his apartment to, quote, get something. At Frank's suggestion, they smoked a pipe full of marijuana. When Ms. R. commenced coughing, Frank fixed her a drink that tasted like coffee but was very sweet and which he told her contained cognac. So that's Uh, why UM came up with the congestion story because if they would have said that she was at the apartment to smoke pot, all sympathy would have flown out the window. Yes. No. Oh, that is so annoying. so maddening. It's disgusting. But it's true. Yeah. They were right. That was right. Yeah. Because she would have been a bad guy then. It makes sense that that's She would have deserved it. That's, of course, not the true story because he, he had to have had a plan to give her this drink. Yes. And if yes. she really was just had a cold, well, then that was lucky for him. So, of course, 
Sure. So she, she starts coughing because she on purpose. smokes yeah. pot and then, yeah, gets that cough and he fixes it. I know. And I was like, who believes that a coffee drink is going to help them get over a cold? Mm. You know, like none of that made sense to me. I was like, what are they yeah. talking about? But if you're like, if you're coughing because you're stoned and he's like, I have a fix for that. Like, or if he's like, here's some coffee and cognac. That makes so yeah. much more sense. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um. So a half hour after drinking the drink, Ms. R began to feel dizzy. She told Frank she was ill and wanted to go home. Frank asked her how much she weighed, and she told him. Oh, my gosh. Her wow. vision became – yeah. Her vision became blurred, and she fell over, striking her head on the arm of the couch. She felt herself being carried toward the bedroom. She then lost consciousness. It was about 4 a.m. on October 13th. Ms. R. was shaken awake by Frank at 7 a.m. on October 14th. She was in bed with him naked. The sheets were covered with menstrual blood. She had vaginal pain and semen was running down her legs. Oh, so he had just done it. Oh my well, he God. probably was doing it a lot. A lot. I mean, he was doing it a lot. Yeah. It was repeated over the course of 24 hours. Oh my she was unable to recall anything that happened during the 27-hour period between the time she passed out and the time Frank awakened her. Ms. R asked Frank if they had had intercourse and he told her that they had and that she enjoyed it. He said that he had given her a drug called Ativan to put her mind to sleep. Mm. A month after the incident, Ms. R went to a doctor to make sure she did not have a venereal disease, but did not report the incident to police until three months after the incident because she was afraid of Frank. She testified that he had threatened her. Then on Friday, February 7th, 1986, Dr. Eileen P., a clinical psychologist and teacher at a local college, went to Todd's bar. There she saw Frank, whom she recognized as a physician that she had met at a reception for a local judge whom she had spoken to on business matters. She approached Frank, joined him, and the two had drinks. When she declined his invitation to go to a movie, Frank decided to accompany her to Temple. Frank then took Dr. P to a meeting at a medical center where he worked. After dinner, Dr. P accepted Frank's invitation to watch a video at his apartment, but made it clear she was not interested in sex. They arrived at his apartment at about 11.30 p.m. Dr. P declined Frank's offer of wine, but accepted some Cafe Vienna. Do you remember Cafe Vienna? Honey? Yes. My mom. All moms. Always had a can. All suburban moms everywhere lived for Cafe Vienna. Mm -hmm. Um, So she took the drink, but expressed distaste at its sweetness. Frank urged her to drink the whole cup, which she eventually did. Shortly thereafter, Dr. P became very drowsy and fell asleep on the couch while watching the video. She remembered the two of them leaving his apartment at about 1.30 a.m., but was not fully conscious until 6 p.m. on Saturday when she was awakened by the ringing of the telephone and, to her surprise, found herself naked in bed with Dr. Frank. (sighs) Frank left shortly thereafter, and Dr. P, too groggy to work as planned, slept until 7 a.m. the next morning on Sunday. Dr. P canceled a date for hiking with Frank, but agreed to have breakfast with him and told him she suspected that she had been drugged or gotten food poisoning. So she's like giving him an out. Mm. Throughout the day, Dr. P continued to feel tired, nauseous, and headachy. In the late afternoon, Frank told her that they had had sexual relations and that he had put a drug in her coffee thinking that it would relax her, which is exactly the term that Cosby used. Like, this will relax you. That is... Yeah. I mean, the, like, Cosby, like, similarities are shocking. Well, and it's, again, I know what's best, so I just did this thing to you. Like, mm-hmm. yeah. Without your I'm a doctor. Consent. Yeah. Mm-hmm. 
The following morning, Dr. P could not recall the name of the drug Frank had mentioned, so she called his office. He told her it was Ativan. She submitted to a urine and blood test that afternoon, and the test was positive for Ativan. Dr. P subsequently recalled several things that happened between 1.30 a.m. and 6 p.m. on Saturday. She recalled being in a shower with Frank and being in bed with him. She also remembered Frank lying on top of her with his penis in her vagina. When police investigated Dr. P's complaint, Frank admitted being with her, but denied use of any drugs. He did admit, however, to using Cafe Vienna with tranquilizers to quiet his dogs and put them to sleep. Cafe Vienna was seized from Frank's apartment with his consent, but tested negative for Ativan, and there were no dogs in the apartment. Oh my God. It's not even a lie. He's not even trying. No, not at all. Ativan, the drug Frank told both victims that they had ingested is normally prescribed for anxiety or insomnia. A large dose can cause an extended period of unconsciousness. Alcohol adds to this effect. Ativan's half-life in the human body is about 18 hours. Apparently, Frank told the women he raped while unconscious not to worry because they enjoyed having sex with him. Frank testified in his defense that both the relationships were consensual. After his disappearance, police found that Frank's car had been seen at Los Angeles International Airport adding to the suspicions that he had fled the country. Following his flight, Frank apparently entered Israel on his official passport, but then applied for citizenship under the law of return four years later. On his application for citizenship, Frank claimed to have no criminal record in his country of origin. But by 2001, the FBI had begun to suspect that Frank had fled to Israel. Israeli police worked to locate Frank and discovered in December of 2004 that he was living in Ranana, under the assumed name of Yonatan Efrat, and that he had since married, fathered a child, and was employed as a family doctor under his assumed name at the the Ranana Health Clinic. Police, however, did not move on the fugitive until puzzling out whether the statute of limitations applied after an international manhunt. Over two years, Israeli and American authorities kept in regular contact to discuss the issue. Finally, the two years... From his initial conviction to when he was returned to the United States is 17 years. Mm. It's, so finally, the authorities concluded that Israel was justified in extraditing Frank since the statute of limitations could not expire while he was the subject of an international manhunt. So basically, by mm-hmm. going on the run, he paused the calendar for the statute of limitations. Wow. wow. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if, like, I think they had to come to this decision, Americans, and America and Israel had to, like, work through and come up with this decision to pause it. Yeah. So following his arrest in Israel, he was ordered held in jail pending a decision on December 27, 2006, when Judge Zevi Segal, deputy head of the Jerusalem District Court, ordered him extradited to Bakersfield to serve his sentence for the two rapes. Of course, Frank appealed, but lost. And on August 1st, 2007, Kenneth A. Frank returned to Kern County Superior Court. Dr. Kenneth A. Frank was sentenced to 12 years in state prison. He was only expected to serve about half of that. In addition, he must pay restitution to his victims and register as a sex offender. After denying defense motions for a new trial and another motion to remove news cameras from his courtroom, Judge Gerald Turner ultimately described Frank's crimes as disturbing, premeditated, and certainly somewhat repugnant. I would pull the somewhat. Yeah. It's just certainly repugnant. Deputy District Attorney Lisa Green, who's in the UM segment, 
And the one that got him convicted in 1989 was the one to get him convicted again, which is super nice. fucking cool. Yeah. I love that. Uh-huh. Yes. So Kenneth Aaron Frank was released on January 13th of 2013 at the age of 62. And I found this dick bitch. Ew. And I have. I have a right mind to dox the shit out of him because I have his home address. Oh, my gosh. I love it. But I won't. <laughs> I'll just say that he currently resides in Nevada and has a non-compliant status on the state's sex offender registry. Oh. Non-compliant status is given to convicted sex offenders who fail to initially register, fail to comply with verification, or fail to update personal information like residential address, employment information, and school information. Wow. So caught him, tried him, convicted him. He went to jail. He's out. He's on the registry. But he's such a gem, like still true, true gem that he is non-compliant. So he won't give them any information. They have to find it all on their own. <sighs> so he's still just a fucking monster yeah. dick bitch. How is yep. that allowed? I mean, it's not allowed. That's why they're, he's marked non-compliant, but there's nothing they can do. Like if he doesn't give them... He's supposed to give them the information, but he's not on parole, so they can't send him back to jail for that wow. for some reason. I think if you're on the sex offender registry and you don't update your shit, you go back to jail. Full stop. Like, that's how it should be. But yeah. that's not how it is. That's what I'm saying. Right. Otherwise, why have that rule? Why have it? Yes. Yeah. So, well, so that's when you look him up, you see that he's non-compliant. You realize that he could be, like, anywhere. Ugh, I hate him. I yeah. hate it. And that's it. That's the story of Dr. Kenneth Aaron Frank. Ugh, Ugh. gross. Fucking monster. Absolute monster. Yeah. I hate him. And those two women were so brave. And it's so upsetting that this probably never would have gone anywhere if it wasn't another doctor that was sexually assaulted. Were before them. And how many were in Tel Aviv? Like, well, they said mm-hmm. the Israeli police said that they investigated and that it didn't seem as though he had con- like had done that in while he was in Israel. So I don't know. In the newspaper articles I read, the Israeli police said that they didn't have any reason to believe that he had done this in Israel. So because mm. I think if he would have, they would have just tried him and convicted him there. They yeah. wouldn't have extradited him. So maybe that was part of why it was taking so long, too. They wanted to make sure that he hadn't hurt anybody in Israel. Maybe. I'm yeah. sure he hurt his wife. I'm sure he did. I mean, yeah, I couldn't find anything out about like what happened to his wife and his child. I think he had a son. Mm. Yeah. Awful. Yeah. I mean, this is a really, this is the first time that UM has like dealt with sexual assault like this head on. And I think that they did do a really good job and a smart job. I mean, some of their verbiage isn't great, but you know, Barring that, the fact that they left out the fact that she was using marijuana because mm-hmm. they know it would have made her look less like a victim. Yeah. So, and I, you know, even for, even Stack explaining to people what date rape is, is like pretty yes. forward thinking. Yes. For I made note of that too. Yeah. You know, like, yeah. so there's there was a lot of people in middle America that probably didn't even know that that was a thing. 100%. Like this was yeah. educating women, if anything, yeah. you know. Totally. That date rape was a big um, education thing in the late 80s and early 90s. And sometimes they did it well. And sometimes they framed date rape as, you know, it's your fault. You went on the date with them and you you put yourself in this situation. Boys are going to rape you when you're on a date. You didn't want your drink. You should have been watching your drink. Yeah. Or you were dressed in a short skirt. Yeah. 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 And it also lessened – like date rape, that term it makes it seem like it's less lesser. bad. 
Yeah. Um, yeah. I agree. Because it's but they, they call it acquaintance rape, rape now, right? Mm-hmm. Something like that. Acquaintance mm-hmm. rape. Yep. Acquaintance assault. Yeah. So okay. that's it. Okay. This is segment three. And this is the missing persons case of Dan Wilson. Um, out of another popular UM destination, Spokane, Washington. Yes. Mm. I love it. So Dan Wilson was known as a quiet religious man. In 1986, when Dan was 33, he and his wife divorced, but he stayed close to his son and daughter. In 1987, Dan suffered a, quote, nervous breakdown, which he felt was due to the trauma of his divorce. In 1988, he seemed to have his life under control and was off his medication, which Mm-mm. that's not how medication works <sighs> nope 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 take and... it from two out of three of us who were on a lot of it <laughs> yeah i'm like every once in a blue i can think of a time a person has done that and it's been okay but no usually yeah. that's not okay in june he started working at the asc machine tool company in spokane co-workers said that he was steady and reliable but on August 24th, Dan had an incident at work. So they show a reenactment of this whole altercation happening between him and the foreman. The foreman was just like checking in with him, asking him when he would be done with something. Mm-hmm. And he flips out. He's like taking everything personally. It turns into this giant yelling fight. And the foreman the whole time is just like, whoa, 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 like trying to deescalate and like totally taken aback by the way Dan is acting because it wasn't like him at all. Right. So this, the foreman spoke with the manager and they decided Dan should take some time off, which mm. is another thing that happened all the time back then and still happens. And, you know, like if somebody was on an administrative leave or something like that, they weren't getting treatment, probably. Right. Mm-hmm. Dan left the plant at 11 that morning on Wednesday, August 24th, 1988. Um, and then we have Stack. He's like walking through a suburban neighborhood and all the sprinklers are running. And I was like, okay. But he says that Dan's neighbors had noticed that his sprinklers had been running for two days. So on Friday, they decided to just turn them off. And they were probably thinking like, oh, he left town and forgot or something. Mm -hmm. And it was not a week that Dan was supposed to have his kids. So his ex-wife also did not notice that he hadn't been around. Dan's mom had called but wasn't alarmed when he didn't answer. Saturday and Sunday went by with no one knowing that Dan was even gone. Wow. Sunday, August 29th, 1988, in remote Custer County, Montana, Sheriff Tony Harbaugh found an abandoned car on the side of the road and started to investigate. He said the doors were unlocked and one door was even open a little bit. Um, There were no keys in the car. There was a Bible on the front seat and the name Daniel Wilson was written in the front cover of the Bible. So eventually they do trace this car to Dan Wilson. Um, The car was 700 miles from Dan's house in Spokane. Wow. The police said they didn't find any luggage or anything like indicating Dan would be on a trip. Tony Harbaugh says they conducted both ground and aerial searches. He said, it's my belief that if Daniel Wilson was in the area, we would have found him at that time. Mm. Stack says there seems to be no explanation for why Dan's car was found on the highway in a Montana prairie. Dan's mom, Darlene, um, is interviewed throughout the segment and she along with two of his cousins, went to speak to um, Sheriff Harbaugh in Montana. The sheriff said the car looked as though it had been parked and walked away from. So the area that it was in was just like 
vast prairie. Like it was just on the side of the road. It's not an area someone would get out and like explore, take a walk mm-hmm. or whatever. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, they checked the car, like the, everything seemed to be working fine. There was still a third of tank of gas, so he didn't run out of gas. Huh. Dan's mother says she couldn't think of any reason Dan would just walk away from his car and take off. So Dan's cousin, Glenda Horseman, says she was afraid for his safety from the get-go because of the state of mind he was in. Hmm. Glenda had just visited him two days before he disappeared, and she said you could, like, when she came over, she could tell the kids had been there. There was, like, toys and things out and, like, plates and food, and it just looked like he had not cleaned up from any of that, Mm -hmm. which was very uncharacteristic for him. So she also had said that he seemed really agitated and really tired. And, like, in the reenactment of her going to visit him, he's, like, explaining that um, he's been working really early and having trouble at work, and that's why he's tired. So Glenda is like, why don't you take a little time off and go visit the family in Colorado? And then just 48 hours later is when he makes the scene at work and vanishes. Mm -hmm. So the family is like, well, maybe he took Glenda's advice and went to go see them. But then why does he have nothing with him in that car? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yep. So then we have another classic UM map with the red lines, always. Mm, We love it. We love to see it. Yep. They show a map of the area between Spokane, Washington and Longmont, um, Colorado, which is where he was. He would have been headed if he was going to see family. Normally, um, if he was making this trip, as he often did, he would pass through Billings, Montana on the way there. But instead, his car was found east from Billings, like 150 miles into like this sparsely populated area that didn't make any sense. So Stack explains that this was a very common trip for Dan to take. Um, He was super familiar with the route. There's really no reason he would be off track. Mm -hmm. Um, Dan's mom says that she suspected foul play from the start, and she's worried that it was someone else who parked the car where it was in Montana, which is totally what I thought, too, initially. Um, And if, like, if you look at the map, there is no reason you would go that way if you're trying to head south. Like, it just doesn't make sense. Yeah. So Dan's mom and cousins go back to his place in Spokane, and they're like, let's look around more. Like, let's figure this out. They find the house in even worse disarray than when Glenda had seen it when she had gone to visit him. Okay. He had left lights on. He had left his luggage behind. He had left his clothes, an uncashed paycheck. Um, His mom said, like, she looked around in, like, his toiletries and stuff. He hadn't taken a toothbrush, a razor, nothing. So she's like, it looked as if he intended to come back. Hmm. On the drive back to Spokane from Montana, Dan's mom and cousin had driven his car back. So the ladies started to notice that as they were driving home, their eyes were burning and they were getting sore throats. Oh, right. Right. So they decided to take the car to get looked at, which they're so smart. Like, yeah. I yes. wouldn't have thought to do that at That's all. Me either. I was, thinking, I was thinking, I wouldn't have thought it was the car. I would have thought it was something just in the air we were driving through or something. Yeah. Yes. Yes. So they take the car to get looked at, and it turns out it had a faulty muffler and was leaking carbon monoxide into the car. Stack says, with Dan driving the car every day for the past year and a half, it's possible the leak was causing him physical and emotional damage. So then they have an interview with Tim Chestnut, who is a critical care specialist, and he says that long-term exposure to carbon monoxide can cause fatigue, changes in personality, and confusion. Jeez. It can cause permanent loss of function of the brain, intellectual ability, memory, as well as severe personality changes resembling psychosis. Wow. Wow. Which I did not know any of that. Like, I knew it was bad, and you don't want to have be exposed to it, but I didn't right. know it could do all those things. 
Dan's mom starts using the phrase amnesia. Um, yeah. Oh, but she goes, that. but she goes on to say that maybe Dan doesn't know who he is, where his family is, how to get in touch with them, which was giving me like major Rajas Kane vibes. Yes. Mm. Stack says that Darlene Wilson quote flooded the state of Montana with flyers. In November of 1988, a homeless shelter in Billings, Montana, sent Darlene a copy of its desk register. It showed that a Daniel Wilson had signed in to spend the night on November 12th, three months after Dan had disappeared. So they show a scene of Darlene comparing the signature that they had in their register book with one of Dan's signatures, and it looks very similar. Mm -hmm. Um, So I don't know if that's a reenactment or if that was a real comparison of the actual signatures right so darlene and one of her nephews go back to billings to talk to the man who runs the shelter um, and darlene brought multiple photos of dan with her hoping that somebody would recognize him the man was like yeah i think i've seen him and there was like another man there that was like oh yeah he definitely he stayed the night here mm. so darlene gets really hopeful um mm. thinking like oh he's been here recently like we're gonna find him so they put up more posters of Dan all over Billings and the surrounding area and all the way back to Spokane, which is just so much work. Um, but at the time of the UM airing, two years after Dan's disappearance, there had still been no sign of him. Mm. And since there were no signs of a struggle or like another person being in the car, they really didn't have like a foul play theory to go on because there was just nothing, no evidence suggesting that. Stack says they have, however, thought that maybe Dan disappeared on purpose. Always. This is always the route they go. Yeah. Of all the stories we've covered in both Patreon and on our proper show, there has mm-hmm. only been one story that we found where someone actually left and yes. everyone thought they were dead. And they one went, story. Right. We're at over 100 episodes. No one leaves their life. No one chooses to leave their life. It is Mm -hmm. so difficult to do. Mm -hmm. And when you leave the life you have, you're leaving it for a shittier life. Yeah. Yeah. Rarely. Yeah. Like 0.1%. Yeah. And this was surprising to me. This is the first time a family member is like, yeah, maybe that would be possible. Glenda is like, it's not impossible that Dan would have made a decision to disappear and start a new life. She says he was under a lot of pressure and hadn't been like he basically hadn't been happy since he had moved Mm -hmm. to Spokane. Mm -hmm. Um, But she says the possibility is small. He was very devoted to his kids. He really felt that they needed him in their life. So she's like, I think whatever happened to him was beyond his control. Um, And they end this segment over this adorable picture of Dan and his little son sitting in the back of their truck. And it's just Mm. cute. Yeah. So then we have the update banner um, and it says the remains of Dan Wilson were eventually found five miles from his car. It was determined he died of died of exposure and the case was closed. So they had room to give us a little more than that. They always do, girl. They're in charge. I It boggles my mind. His body was not found until 1997, oh, which is nine years after. Okay. Yeah. So Whoa. they could have fit in six characters to let us know that. Yes. In- and it was only five miles from his car for nine years. Oh, my God. Wow. They were only able to identify him by dental records. Wow. So this case also gave me major Patricia Meehan vibes. I um, was, I literally have the wiki page up right now because as you were talking, I was like, this is exactly Patty Meehan. Yep. Exactly. Except this time they found a body. Found the body. Yeah. Yep. Wow. So nobody really knows anything about this case. Mm-hmm. Um, 
it's one of those crazy disappearance cases, except for this time we have a body, like we were just saying. Right. Yeah. Um, I will say that the fact that it was found five miles from his car is astounding to me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because from what I understand, it's just like giant stretches of prairie. And if this sheriff had done an extensive search, like he said he did. Right. Why didn't he find him? Like, huh? Maybe he yeah. thought like five miles was maybe they didn't look out that far. That's what I'm thinking. And so then I was like, well, I'll get to it in a bit. But I was like looking up the logistics of all of this. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um. So some people on the message boards, because really that's all there is for this, right. say that um, maybe his body was not there when they did the search. Maybe he actually was at the homeless shelter for a while and at some point decided to wander back to his car. Right. But that to me seems mm. unlikely. Oh. If he ended up in a homeless shelter, he probably didn't know where he was or what. He yeah, was. no. So I would know where his car was to go yeah, back to it later. That's true. So and then another big thing on the message boards that everyone wants to know is were those actually the real signatures? on um right. because they looked pretty similar but it's possible they're just part of a reenactment yep. mm-hmm. um, and if it was his mom wanting to find him of course she thought they looked similar yeah. um they also made no mention of like a handwriting expert or anything like that so yeah um i personally do not believe he was ever at the homeless shelter i think his name is super super common which also mm-hmm. made the research um, and I think the people who worked there wanted to help this family and were like, yeah, I think we did see him, you know, like, yeah, which you, you want to help and you don't quite think it through how much hope you're giving them. Like maybe at least say, I think so, but I'm not sure, you know? Yes. And someone on the message board said, when this segment originally aired, they said something about how that man had been seen with a woman and children. So mm. if that's the case, that was not him. Oh, wow. Yes. And the car is 1986. One of the top commenters said they probably edited that part out later when they found him dead because they knew that was obviously not him. So, Um, well, that was like, um, we see that a lot too. Matthew Chase's case. Remember they had, Mm -hmm. they had everyone convinced that he, they saw Matthew Chase at this homeless shelter and to come back and he would be back and it never was him. He was dead within 24 hours. Yes. Totally. I think he just wandered away from his car. He was not in the right state of mind. He wandered out into the prairie. It was probably nighttime. I don't know if he was suicidal or if he was just like completely confused. Mm-hmm. Um, and he probably just died of exposure. So I looked up all of that stuff, like temp- like average temperature in Montana in September. And like, you can absolutely 100% die of hypothermia. Yes. It takes on average an hour and 25 minutes to walk five miles. That's plenty of time if he was at a low enough body temp. Like, it all adds yeah. up. It all adds yeah. up. So all I have to say about this case is that I don't think the sheriff did a very good job searching. Um, or, yeah, maybe like you said, there that wasn't within their range they would normally search at that time. Yeah, maybe they didn't think that he could have made it as far as he did within, like, within the time constraints that they thought they had. Yeah, right. so yeah. They didn't even one thing I was shocked about by this case was like the possible reason they were saying for that outburst and all that being the carbon monoxide leak. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I was, like, I was like, is it really possible that you can have like extended long-term exposure to carbon monoxide and not realize? Right. Um, and I was like, if his mom and his cousin noticed they were feeling bad right away, like wouldn't he have known something was mm. wrong? Right. Mm. But I looked into it and like, 
No. Whoa. Yes. So basically when carbon monoxide is breathed in, what it does is it makes it so your blood can't carry oxygen. Mm -hmm. Okay. So your tissue and organs just slowly start dying because they're not getting oxygen. Wow. So symptoms of carbon monoxide poisoning are not always obvious, particularly during low level exposure. Mm. Um, The most common symptom is just a tension type headache. Um, Wow. Yep. And then other symptoms include dizziness, feeling tired and sick, um, being a little confused, stomach pain, shortness of breath, difficulty breathing, which like on any given day, I probably have one of those and don't think anything of it. No. Yeah. And it also says it never gives you a high temperature. So there's never like super cause for concern. Wow. Yep. And symptoms may be less severe when you're away from the source of the carbon monoxide. So maybe he felt better every time he wasn't in the fucking car. Holy shit. And that would give like, I mean, aside, you know, you can have a mental health disorder. Mm -hmm. But aside from that, maybe his irritability was because of the carbon monoxide poisoning. Yeah. I'm more likely to think it was both. Like he was having a rough time in his life anyway. But it was probably all majorly exacerbated by this. Wow. Um, So when it says the longer you inhale the gas, the worse your symptoms will be. You may lose balance, vision, and memory. Eventually, you may lose consciousness. It can happen within two hours if there's a lot of carbon monoxide in the air. So I looked up, like, the drive from Spokane to Billings is seven hours and 45 minutes. Holy shit. So he was having super long exposure, and it's possible it had been a while since he had taken that long of a drive. Yeah. Yeah. So, wow. Yeah. Long-term exposure to low levels of carbon monoxide can lead to neurological symptoms, difficulty thinking or concentrating, frequent emotional changes, for example, becoming easily irritated, depressed, or making impulsive or irrational decisions. Like, it just all, like, the whole thing, it all adds up. Yeah. And it's, wow. I'm like, oh my goodness. How often does this happen to people? I have heard of this happening before. One case I think I heard about was a carbon monoxide leak in someone's window air conditioner. Oh, wow. That was like pretty slow like this. And then also in wood stoves. Mm. Wow, you have to think like with all of these missing person cases where the car is found abandoned, like are they... Yeah. Is it carbon monoxide that's doing it? And slowly driving these people to lose themselves, to lose their minds? Yes. It made me think about Patricia Meehan. Like maybe she moved out of her mind for that same reason. Yeah. And like it's such a slow burn that, like you said, if there's no fever, but you feel weird, you're not going to do anything. Like a fever is the demarcation of whether or not you go to a doctor. Yes. Especially if it's like a tension headache and you're feeling nauseous. You could just be like, "I, I have car sickness. I'm or yeah, it could be no. anything. Those are like signs of anything. Stress, you know. Like I mean, wow, that yeah. like this—that's is- pretty bananas. This says, in a typical year, nearly 400 Americans die from carbon monoxide poisoning, usually in their own home or a car. Oh my! Many Whoa. of them happen during the winter months when people are heating their homes and reducing the amount of outside ventilation. Well, think too about those older cars, Right. you know, like now everything's computerized, there's sensors everywhere, something would trigger, but right. like old beater cars, like 
that would not happen at all. You would just be breathing that in and not knowing at all. Yes. And the reason carbon monoxide is so sneaky and deadly is because you can't smell it. Smell it. Yeah. There's no smell. You wouldn't know. Wow. That is pretty wild and puts like a lot of things into perspective. Like you said about like Patty Meehan and like these cases where it's like someone, it looks like someone just pulled their car over the side of the road, got out and walked away Mm -hmm. and no one understands why, Mm -hmm. you know? This this site says to never dismiss a fender bender as something you should just get checked later. Even minor collisions can cause breaks in your car's exhaust system, allowing CO to enter into your passenger area. Oh, wow. And then I wonder if that's like a routine test they do now if you have been in one. I wonder, yeah. This also says if you get stuck in deep snow by the side of the road and decide to stay in your car and keep warm with your engine running, be sure to clear snow away from your exhaust pipe. I did know that. Which I would have known. When we were covering another case, the son of one of the people we were covering, it was um, the two Toms that went missing, the writer. Oh, yeah. yeah. And his his son had passed away. And the right. reason why he passed away was they were stuck in a van mm-hmm. and they were running the engine and mm-hmm. he died of carbon monoxide poisoning. And his friend was able to like muster enough cohesiveness to call his girlfriend and was rambling incoherently. And she oh. finally got it out of him where they were and was able to find him. And by the time they found him, this other person had passed away. Wow. Nice. Yeah. And it was from carbon monoxide poisoning and they were stuck. They were they had stalled out or something and they were in the middle of nowhere in a snowbank and they were just running the engine to stay warm. It's terrible. It's so awful. So yeah, yeah, we don't know for sure that this is what happened to him, but it seems very likely. Yeah. Wow. That puts so many other things into perspective now as we move forward with these missing person cases where it seems like someone truly just lost themselves. Mm -hmm. Yes. And also- like warning now to everyone, if you are consistently not feeling well, have equipment and cars checked out. Like, yeah. Wow. Nice work, Carlin. Way to like uncover that. That's a really big thing for us moving forward. Like that's something that we can keep in mind now. Yeah. So wild. So sad. Nice job, girl. Good work. Hey, Andy. Yes, Lisa. You ever sit around thinking about how Ren and Stimpy is the greatest Nicktoon ever? I mean, I sit around thinking about how Rocco is and how Ren and Stimpy isn't even top five. Well, you're wrong, and now I challenge you to a fight to the death. Uh, You know what? Let's mark that down as plan B. Uh, Hey, gang, check out 90s Court Podcast, where each week, Lisa and I discuss two things from the 90s that brought us great joy. Or great cringe. We cover movies, TV, video games, music, toys, food, and so much more. Check us out on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you podcast and catch up on a great backlog of 90s goodies. And be sure and follow us on Facebook and Twitter at 90s Court because it's 90s Court. And that means that you, the jury, decide who wins each week. And if this podcast thing doesn't work out, I can always just murder Andy. Please listen. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, 
even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hey, Resolvers. Is there something interfering with your happiness or preventing you from achieving your goals? It's understandable to feel anxious and unsure during this difficult time. Did you know BetterHelp will assess your needs and match you with your own licensed professional therapist? You can connect in a safe and private online environment. It's so convenient, especially now when in-person counseling isn't always available. Start communicating in under 24 hours. This is not self-help. It's professional counseling. You can send a message to your counselor anytime and you'll get timely and thoughtful responses. Plus, you can schedule weekly video or phone sessions, all without ever having to sit in an uncomfortable waiting room. BetterHelp is committed to facilitating a great therapeutic match, so they make it easy and free to change counselors if needed. It's more affordable than traditional offline counseling and financial aid is available. The service is also available for clients worldwide. There is a broad range of expertise available, which may not be locally available in many areas. Licensed professional counselors specialize in depression, stress, anxiety, trauma, family conflicts, LBGT matters, grief, and self-esteem. Anything you share is completely confidential. It's convenient, professional, and affordable professional therapy. This is not a crisis line. Check out the positive testimonials posted daily on their site. In fact, so many people have been using BetterHelp that they are recruiting additional counselors in all 50 states. Resolvers, start living a happier life today. As a listener, you'll get 10% off your first month by visiting betterhelp.com mysteries. Join over 1 million people taking charge of their mental health. Again, that's betterhelp.com mysteries. Chickens, Diet Coke, reality TV, and murder don't seem like things that should go together, but somehow they do. If you're looking for your next binge-worthy podcast and you like your true crime light on the gore, then you should check out our show, Moms and Murder, a true crime podcast hosted by myself, Mandy, and my dear friend, Melissa. Each week, we give our take on a new crime story, balancing our delivery of facts and levity while still giving the stories the respect they deserve and making you feel like you're a part of the conversation. And there are over 100 episodes to binge. Search Moms and Murder on your favorite podcast app and subscribe so you never miss a new episode. You guys ready? Right eye. Okay, so the last segment of season three, episode three, is a wanted segment, and it's the Minnesota Brinks heist. So the segment opens with a reenactment of an armed guard bringing money from the bank to an armored car. Stack's voiceover says, every day, billions of dollars in hard currency are transported by armored cars. He says these vehicles have recently been targeted by a brazen, heavily armed gang that carry out their raids with almost military precision. So at 1 p.m. on April 19th, 1989, in Eden Prairie, Minnesota, an armored car was robbed. 
Stack says, instinctively, the guard grabbed one of the robber's guns, but was quickly subdued and no shots were fired. The security manager of the armored car says that the guys seemed to run very smoothly. They didn't seem in a hurry and they didn't seem panicky. Special Agent Robert Roman of the Minneapolis FBI says the robbers come in very heavily armed and very much ready to shoot, which it seems like they're not because they could have shot that guard and they didn't. But okay. Stack says almost simultaneously, the second phase of the heist begins. Another vehicle pulled up in front of the armored car, cutting off any route of escape. A fourth robber then appeared to place a bomb on the hood of the truck which is so smart. And in just under a minute, robbers had stolen close to $1 million and then vanished without a trace. I know. So crazy. We are in the wrong business, ladies. (laughs) So Special Agent Roman says, it seemed like a commando type of thing. Like these people had been well-trained at that type of thing. Mm -hmm. So a bomb squad was dispatched to the scene, which is so smart because then it slows down the investigation because you think there's a bomb. Yeah. So you can't go running off chasing after these people because you can't leave a bomb in a public space on the top of a car. Yep. So x-rays later revealed the bomb was fake. In the reenactment, they attach wires. So they're talking about diffusing the bomb in the reenactment. And I guess in order to do that, they attach wires to the bomb and remove it from the hood. But in the reenactment, the bomb is like attached to these wires and it's just swinging everywhere. Like it's like, <laughs> yeah. right. And I'm like, I really hope that's not how you diffuse a bomb because it seems <laughs> highly irresponsible. Yeah. Like the bomb is just like willy nilly in the air all over the place. <laughs> so the FBI linked the fake bomb to an identical device used in Baltimore, Maryland three years earlier. In that operation, the thieves stole more than $600,000. The FBI concluded that both robberies were executed by the same gang. Stack says, in the first two heists, it was a combination of careful planning and clockwork timing. At that point, the thieves had stolen $1.6 million. They had also brilliantly covered their tracks. Every vehicle used had been stolen, wiped clean of evidence, and then abandoned. Stack says, it was thought that the gang would quit while they were a million dollars ahead, but one year later, they struck again. So on March 24th, 1990, in Burnsville, Minnesota, just 10 miles from the scene of the last robbery, as one Brinks guard waited in the cab of the truck, another made a cash pickup at a local bank. In the reenactment, they have the guard uh, get on the ground, so, quote, subdue him. And once again, the second guard is caught in the cab of the truck. So the second guard, they interview him. He's great. Uh, he is oh. wild. You know what's really bananas is like the the second the second part of the heist is the car pulling up to place a bomb. Oh. <laughs> and this guy didn't even let them get out of the car to pretend to place a bomb. He just drove into them. Yes. So if they actually had a bomb, yeah. he would have potentially blown everything up. Yeah. For a second in the reenactment, I thought he was going to try to run them over when they were outside oh, the car. Too. Yeah. Oh, me too. Me too. I was like, whoa. So the second guard says he saw a van pull up in front of him. So he hit the hit the gas and like drove off with the robbers firing shots at him. Yeah. So in the reenactment, this the guy is driving the armored car in a giant circle in the parking lot with his alarm going off. So it's like, beep, 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 beep. And he's just driving in circles. And they're like shooting guns at him. And then suddenly the robbers jump into a car. And then the guard takes the armored car and rams them as hard as he can 
in the uh, in the car. Mm-hmm. Like he just like totally like just drives right into them. I mean, so it's a ballsy. it's a crazy reenactment, and mm-hmm. I can't imagine like in real life what that looked like. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like, just, he like, was like, what? I was scared out of my mind. It's like, like yeah, we're, we're shooting at you. Well, you're a king because if I was scared out of my mind, I wouldn't be driving toward the source of the bullets. Yes. I'd be driving away from it, you know? Yeah. <sighs> However, despite the collision, the robbers still managed to get away. Ugh. So Special Agent Roman uh, Ramon says, it was very lucky that an innocent bystander wasn't killed by the shots fired. And that's true. They're just mm-hmm. shooting. Likely. Mm-hmm. Um, Stack says the robbers abandoned the car by a nearby shopping center and left on foot. It's theorized that there was another vehicle parked nearby that they used to leave the area. Even though roadblocks were set up and tracking dogs were brought in, the gang had once again escaped capture. So the following morning, the police found one of the gang's stolen cars less than a mile from the bank. Again, it contained no evidence. Stack says the only thing authorities can do is wait for the robbers to strike again. Special agent says uh, the individuals could be living anywhere in the United States and he would like literally anyone to come forward with information yes like he's just basically like what what yeah. am i supposed to do these guys could be anywhere yeah. like what am i supposed to do with this stack says that there are apparently four members of the gang and authorities have managed to create composites of three of them oh <laughs> <Ben> stack, no <laughs> no then stack gives the descriptions of the suspects three white guys yep. in their 30s average height average build and that's it. What so, was weird was he explicitly called out that the first two were white. And then the third one, he did not say that, even though he was also white. <laughs> yeah. I mean, they all just look like literally anybody. Like yes. they could be anybody. He's like, I tried to tell you, they could be anywhere. And it could be literally <laughs> yeah. anyone. Good luck. Allow me to double down on that. <laughs> the first guy's face was way too small for the size of his head. Like, oh, I, I hope there's not a real person that looks like that. Oh, well, you know, we've seen some composites that really do look like people, honey. <laughs> when we thought they could impossibly, and they it's did. True, it's true. We've seen some aliens that were yes. drawn and turned mm-hmm. out to be people. So. It's true. Um, so, like I said, there's no update. So this is what I found. Um, in December of 1990, there was a holdup in Chictawaga, New York, outside a bank branch in the Walden Galleria. It is believed to be the biggest theft of cash ever recorded in Erie County, New York. Four masked men blocked the path of a Brinks truck, threatened a guard at gunpoint, and escaped with the cash in a stolen car. Quote, the whole thing was very professionally executed. It only took them a minute, two minutes at the most, and they never fired a shot, said Chictawaga Police Detective Lieutenant James Morath. Quote, given the magnitude of the robberies, you have to consider the possibility that there's a connection, FBI Special Agent Paul Moscow of the Buffalo office said. There's definitely a pattern there. It could be the same guys that were involved in a few different cases. According to the FBI, two armored truck holdups in the Minneapolis area were, the sim- were similar to the Cheektowaga heist. And last year was the 30th anniversary of the Eden Prairie robbery, and the bank robbers have never been apprehended. Oh, my God. (laughs) You know what? I am not surprised because it is clear that everyone used the term military precision. Everyone Mm -hmm. said that. Mm -hmm. To me, these guys served in the same battalion or the same squadron, and they have like a brotherhood and a camaraderie that most of us can't possibly understand. Mm-hmm. I think that they work together. They rob these places and 
that they would never turn on each other because they have this like level of trust that a lot of people don't really, they can't really fathom that mm -hmm. what develops, like if you're in the military, they could have been former, they could have been Vietnam vets. They right. could have been Operation Desert Storm vets. They could have been, you know. And they were clearly okay with just always being on the move, which is also a military yeah. trait. Right. Exactly. Right. Like they didn't pause, you know, they didn't, they didn't falter. They were they just moving. They didn't have a home base. Yeah, they had a strategy and they were sticking to that strategy, you know. Wow. So I really, I like, I just, the only thing, because, you know, normally with a case like this, you just, all you have are the comments, right? Yeah. And even the comments, there was only one that I was like, oh, that's interesting. And I don't have it written down, so I'm just going to, from memory, the commenter said that he went to high school with a girl who was from the area of Eden Prairie in Minnesota. And that one day her estranged father had showed up at her house with a ton of money, cash mm. money, given it to her mother for child support and then said that he had to go away for a while. <sighs> and that he had a day, like he was like a day laborer, you know, like not a union laborer, like a day laborer. Mm -hmm. And they had they never could figure out where he got the money from. Whoa. And it was around the time of the heist. And that was the only comment that I could see. So everyone in the comment section is like, these people will never be caught. Never, yeah. ever, ever. If they still aren't by now, like how do they spend the money in a way that's right. not going to get them caught? Yeah. Yes. I mean, you just have to like bury it somewhere and slowly siphon it off. Like yeah. you can't pay your mortgage in cash. You know, no. like if you go buy a car in cash, like it goes to the government. The government knows that you spent that money. Mm -hmm. So like, I have no idea aside from like, and you can't travel with that kind of cash on you. No. Like it's so restrictive. So like, what do you do? You bury it in your backyard and then pull it off to pay for stuff. you like, I have and no then, idea. And then if you're doing it so you don't have to work, isn't that going to be a giveaway at some point that you never work? Yeah. Or you have you to keep working. You got to keep working. I Because the IRS is going to wonder how you're paying for your house if you don't have yeah. a job. Yeah. You know. Jeez. Yes. Yeah, I'm always fascinated by that too. Like, how do you, unless you pay someone to launder it, that's an option. Right. Like, who knows who these people, we don't have no idea who these people are. We don't know what their connections would be. Right. But like, beside that, like, how do you get rid of all of this cash in a casual way that doesn't draw attention to yourself? Yes. Right. That's, that's what crazy. I always wonder. Like, it's not that's why I want to rob a bank because I feel like I'd be really responsible with how I spent the money. <laughs> Mm -hmm. <laughs> okay, like I would well, just be for takeout. <laughs> I would just be for takeout forever. Oh, yeah, I'd be like, just... that's one bill I don't have to do. <laughs> so out. much pizza. So much sushi. Just Postmates sushi every day. Always <laughs> full of that Postmates account. Just full, full, full. <laughs> yes. Just always replenish that Postmates, honey. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, so that's it. I mean, you know. I used to say that bank robbery was a victimless crime, and now I realize it's not. Yeah. People are victimized, and I understand that. But yeah. in terms of like the episode that we had so far, this was like the most lighthearted aspect. Yeah, <laughs> I was like, I guess good for them. Like, think their friendships. They're Thank good friends, and that's nice. Can't find that every day. No. Yeah, <laughs> it's probably traumatic for the Brinks drivers. Exactly. So that's why yeah. I don't say it's a victimless crime anymore, because obviously there are victims and it's probably terrifying to have a gun in your face. So, yes, 
but this is the most like this is what episode three has done to us of season three. Like this is the the feel good segment. You know? <laughs> wow. No one died. Some people got away with a lot of money, and the banks were insured, and they got their money back. So yeah, yay! Wow. Well, good job. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Do we have things to share and things to feel? Oh boy! Yes, yeah. Oh, Carlin, do it. Carlin, do go it. first, girl. Um, I started a podcast called The Stoop. So it is hosted by two women named um, Layla Day and Hana Baba. One of them is African American, and the other one is African from Sudan. And cool. they just talk about Black experience in America. And so, like, each episode is about a different thing. Um, like, there was one about African-American people wearing tribal wear and mm -hmm. the differing opinions on that. Like, if mm -hmm. that's still appropriation or if that's just something to be proud of. And or like, there was one about how a lot of African-American families don't say I love you a lot and huh. like where where that roots from. And it's just like all these different topics I never, ever would have thought about. Even like the racism some African-Americans and Africans have toward each other. Various things. It's just a unique perspective. And they're just like so like they're like I feel like we could hang out all of us in a room together and get along great. Like they're just very like chill, cool ladies. And they just like make, make each subject very approachable. Cool. Um, and make it interesting and fun to listen to. So I really like cool. it. Cool. So yeah. Awesome. I can go. Mine is very similar. It's I can't remember if I've recommended this podcast on the show before, but um, it's called The Nod. Do either of you listen to that? I have not I don't. seen that popping up. It's it's been on for a long time. Um, it's really good. It's hosted by Brittany Luce and Eric Eddings, and I think the podcast is actually ended in January um, and they are starting a show on Quibi I think it is just a really great podcast about black life um, black pop culture they have funny episodes but they have really serious episodes too um, they seriously cover everything it's a Gimlet show and Gimlet is a great pod company so yeah I recommend The Nod it's really good Cool. And I'm excited yes. to try yours, Carlin. Yeah, I just really, really like the hosts a lot. So I have a documentary recommendation. It's on Netflix. It's called Disclosure, and it is fascinating. It's about Hollywood's impact on the trans community. Mm. And Laverne Cox uh, plays a very large role in it, but there's mm -hmm. also a lot of trans actors, some of which I didn't know were trans, mm -hmm. that are interviewed. And it's a, like just about the way trans culture is perceived in Hollywood and therefore like filtered through the greater American populace. Mm -hmm. um, it's very moving and it's really educational. I felt a lot more aware and like thoughtful after I had watched it. It's great. So I absolutely recommend it. It's really good. Nice. Mm. I want to watch that. Okay. What are we talking about next episode? Episode four. Ooh. Um, I go first, which I feel like doesn't happen a lot. Um, I go first and I have the unexplained death of Stanley Griesick. Mm. I was crying. That one. Oh, mm. I know. 
Um, and then we have the wanted segment of Kevin Poulsen. Oh, and then um, a last mm. love segment, a woman Ooh. looking for a childhood friend named Sharita Harding. That and had me in tears. That yep. one had me crying. I was yeah, crying for that one. It's a good one. All oh right, guys. So I guess next episode's going to be a little bit teary. <laughs> you mm-hmm. just never can tell what you're going to get here. <laughs> no. All right, everybody. Thanks for being here. Um, you can go to patreon.com slash resolve mysteries podcast to support us a little bit and get some extra content. If you subscribe at $5 a month or higher, you're going to get a couple extra episodes a month and a shout out, shout out on our main feed show to see photos we reference in the episode, which you're definitely going to want to see those hair helmets. Follow us on Instagram at re underscore solved mysteries on Facebook and Twitter at resolve the pod. You can contact us at our website, resolve mysteries podcast.com or our email resolve mysteries podcast at gmail.com or our PO box one four zero zero five Portland, Oregon nine seven two nine three. Um, and please send us some stories for listeners, short stacks. We are going to need more content from you guys. If we are going to make more of these episodes, <laughs> we're <laughs> running <the> out. <laughs> we're running low. <laughs> so send us any, anything you want, anything you think we would think is interesting or funny. Um, you can send us things related to UM or the cases we're covering here, your nostalgia about the show, anything you'd like. Um, and subscribe, please, wherever you get your podcasts. If you leave us a five-star review, um, that would be great. And you can tell a friend, spread the word. For every review we receive this month, we are going to be donating a dollar to the Foundation for Women's Cancer, suggested by our patron, Courtney B. Another beefy sode. <laughs> we love you, everybody. Thank you, guys. No we one's going to react like to this. me saying beefy sode. I over? was just going to say, we hope you like this beefy soda. I'll just jump on board. I'll lean into the beefy soda this time. I will not lean into the beefy soda. I'll let you have it. All I picture every time is a package of ground red meat. Every oh, single time. Oh, all I picture is a can of beefaroni. Like Chef Boyardee beefaroni. Yeah, that's kind of similar to what I picture. We need to have like one of our one of our listeners who does like are just like who likes to design stuff for us they need to do like an andy warhol can (laughs) but instead of beefaroni it needs to say like david david help us out (laughs) i love that (laughs) all right thanks everybody thanks guys love you Bye. bye 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 No one <laughs> listeners, White you let me know. Like, <laughs> White lady blindness. <laughs> I had one yesterday. We will not say the name. And I was showing Allison a picture. I was like, she's just not even pretty. And Allison's like, what is wrong, wrong with you? your eyes? Something is wrong with you. <laughs> ay, ay, ay. Okay. <laughs>
Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Lucky Land Casino. Asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandsLots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.